The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Happy New Year. I would hope for you that 2022 is there that you and or your loved ones get clean and sober and are able to stay that way. Today is episode number 248. My name is Joni Siegel. I'm the host for this podcast, and my husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer. We are almost complete with our fifth year of podcasting, and we sincerely hope that we have been able to offer messages of hope and help to those of you who are struggling with this addiction pandemic. If you have been watching and listening recently, then you know that um, I started watching back in November, I started watching the um, series on Hulu called Dope Sick. It's an eight-part series. It is a, I guess you call it a docudrama because it's basically the true story of of Purdue Pharma and how they lied to doctors about the addictiveness of OxyContin, which then sparked a whole opioid overdose dep- epidemic or op- opioid epidemic in this country. And um, that's what the series is about. But I think that some, maybe some of the people in it are fictional. I don't know. It does have uh, Marianne Skolik in it. And we have, of course, interviewed her on the podcast before. And um, yeah, anyway, it is riveting. If you have any interest Um, personal or otherwise in this whole addiction pandemic, then you should watch it. You should make a point of watching it. It's eight episodes. And um, when I first started watching it, I, uh, I said to Steve, I said, we need to do a panel about this, about Purdue and about the Sacklers and where that stands right now. Um, Dope Sick is based on a book by a lady named Beth Macy. We hope to get her on the podcast to do another panel, but Today, we are doing a panel, and before I get into who the members of the panel are, I want to remind you to please subscribe to this podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and give us a five-star rating. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and give us a thumbs up on our videos, because that helps, you know, Google will then tell people about the podcast, and that's really what we want, is for people to watch the podcast so that they can get help and that they know that there is hope for them. Okay, so our panel today, we're going to have two people who have been intimately involved in this whole Purdue, uh, excuse me, Purdue Pharma Sackler thing. The first one is a mother. Her name is Cynthia Munger. She has devoted her time to the issues of substance use disease with special focus on Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family and their role in the opioid crisis. In 2019, Cynthia wrote and presented to Boston Opioid Spoon Conference a paper entitled The Web of Conflict. Cynthia is a listed officer in the Opioid Spoon Project nonprofit, one of the five-person members of the Purdue Bankruptcy Ad Hoc Committee, go Cynthia, Ad Hoc Committee on Accountability, active members of Friends of Safe House Bankruptcy Legislation Editing Committee, founding member of Mentor Program Interim House and an active supporter of the Sackler Act, among others. Cynthia was interviewed for an Italian TV opioid special and a major presenter in the soon-to-be-released Needles in the Hay. Now, 
that BIOS is soon to be released. Um, we interviewed Cynthia sometime earlier in the year so that she can probably tell us more about that, um, about that needles in the hay program. We are also going to have with us today noted best-selling author and investigative journalist with a Pulitzer Prize nomination, Mr. Gerald Posner. He um, was a litigation associate at the Wall Street law firm of Kravitz, Swain and & Moore and later provided pro bono legal representation on behalf of surviving twins of Nazi experiments at the Auschwitz death camp, which led him to co-author his first book, Mangali, The Complete Story a best-selling critically acclaimed biography of the infamous Nazi angel of death, Dr. Joseph Mengele. He released the book Pharma last year, and it is an explosive and meticulously documented expose of decades of fraud, incompetence, conspiracy, and avarice of the pharmaceutical industry, including the involvement of the Sackler family. So uh, we figured that these two are more than qualified to speak about the unethical at best, um, illegal for sure, and criminal activities of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. So let's get this panel started. I will probably do the multi-view screen so you can see all three of us. Let's talk to Gerald Posner and Cynthia Munger, and let's talk about the Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers. So I kind of did an intro. Cynthia, welcome. Gerald, welcome. And I, I, what actually got me um, uh, not inspired, more enraged, if you will, was watching the recent series Dope Sick. And um, Dope Sick would be a riveting fictional drama if it were fiction. The fact that it's not fiction, I think is absolutely horrifying. And that's what I tell everybody that I know, because I don't think that many people know about, about that whole story. But to, to go back a little bit, and Gerald, you can probably comment on this, because I want to get a little bit of the background of all of this, because Purdue's marketing was unbelievable how they marketed. But what I didn't realize was that Arthur Sackler did the same thing with Valium. Yeah. Over uh, look to you, it, Gerald. It, no, it's in their DNA. As a matter of fact, it, Joni, it's interesting you mentioned Dope Sick because one of the best experiences I've had, I loved Beth Macy's book when I read it, and when it came out at the time. And then when Danny Strong, who's the uh, producer who pulled that series together, and Beth asked me to be a consultant on Dope Sick, and I worked with them on those scripts, People ask me sometimes afterwards, they say, who don't know the story, they say, oh, it, it's just television, it's Hollywood. So they must have played fast and loose with the facts. And I say, no, they really didn't. That's the story. That's what happened. And people are startled by that who don't know. You know, we take it for granted. Uh, you know, Cynthia's a mother. She's been in the fight for for years. You've had so many shows about Purdue. I've, I spent five years looking at the pharmaceutical industry and, and them. So it's not a surprise. But so many people don't know them, can't quite believe their story. And you're right. This is a family that in some ways invented medical advertising, made Valium, a benzodiazepine, the best-selling drug in the world for 15 years. And in their DNA, they know how to market. So 96, when they come out with OxyContin, which is the first 
time-released opioid painkiller. That's what was special about it. Everything else, Percocet, said everything else was an immediate release painkiller. would last three to four hours. That was the end of it. Now you have a company that comes up, goes to the FDA and says, hey, guess what? We have this invisible polymer coating on ours. It could last up to 12 hours, only two a day. That probably means people won't abuse it as much. They won't get as addicted. They won't get an immediate Russian high. No studies about that at all. The FDA said, hmm, that makes sense to us. Put on the label language that you never would believe that it could be less addictive based on studies that were completely wrong. And it gave Purdue the ability to go out and market this as less than 1% chance of addiction. Absolutely false, a lie, they knew it. And then of course you get into that whole wonderful world of doctors who get a little bit too greedy and they start to prescribe more pills than they should in some instances and pill mills and the person the FDA who approves the original label leaves and goes to work for Purdue. For I'm just going to say that and let me sign off on it and oh by the way can you offer me a job. That's right and this is a revolving door which you think you look at it and you say to yourself come on you can't do it it's not right and yet it gets done and then in 2001 and 2002, when the DEA is saying, by the way, we have a problem with OxyContin. It's being diverted to the street. It's all over. We have to do something about it. The FDA is responsible for regulating them, says, ah, we don't think so. It's all right with us. And it's not until 2007, 11 years later, that Purdue finally pleads guilty to a bunch of felonies, including three executives. They have to sign this big compliance agreement. They pay over $600 million. And at that point, it looks like it's over. That's just the beginning. From 2008 through the rest of the time, $35 billion in sales. They went absolutely crazy. All the distributors, the big distributors, Amerisource, Bergen, Cardno, they, they, are, they know where every pill goes. They're doing nothing about it. The FDA is lax. They even at one point, as I just wrap this up, there's one point in which their their patent is running out on OxyContin. They need to find something to do to extend it. And so they make an adjustment that they say, oh, this is tamper-proof in 2011, 12, and 13. We have a tamper-proof form of the pill. Now all the problems in the past are gone. Guess what? That's not true. The tamper-resistant cover did virtually nothing, but they sold it again in marketing to doctors. Doctors believed it and they upped the prescription rates at a time when OxyContin was already leaving a trail of devastation across the country. It's a disgraceful story that just gets your blood boiling when you know it. It, it does. But Gerald, let me just ask you a question because you are probably one of the preeminent researchers in the whole area of pharma. This is not the first company that has had somewhat questionable marketing tactics. I mean, what about like Eli Lilly and Prozac? Are there, aren't there other companies that have run into trouble with this? No question. As a matter of fact, you know, in the 60s, it was diet pills. So the equivalent of pill mills for opioids was these weight loss clinics in which they were giving out uh, amphetamine like it was candy. Uh, you have had a series of companies that were over marketing their drugs. And then when they get caught, they do the same thing that Purdue does. In, they don't usually file bankruptcy. That's unusual because the big companies like Lilly Johnson and Johnson, uh, Pfizer, Bristol Myers, they're so big that they just pay the fine, they write the check, and that because of the cost of doing business for them. That's the way it works in pharma for the most part. Very seldom do you ever see anybody charged with a crime. It did happen with a small 
fentanyl-based product called Insys recently, in which the executives actually went to prison. They became billionaires, but their marketing was so egregious, they got charged with crimes and went away. But that's a rare example. So mostly pharma companies get caught, they write the check, it reduces the amount of their profits, and that's almost what's happened verbatim here, except that Purdue went bankrupt, but the Sacklers wrote the big check, as Cynthia will tell you, and they walked away this time. This is one of the things that I just get infuriated and so angry about. We shouldn't allow that to happen. If you let these people, Joni, keep their country club memberships, they keep a bulk of their money, they don't go to jail for it, they're not worried about criminal charges, they're not going to change their behavior. They're going to do it until they finally get caught red-handed, and that's what happens. And in this case, they cost lives, they destroyed people, and it was one of the most lethal, if not the most lethal, prescription drug epidemic in American history. It's true. Cynthia, talk a little bit about what's happening with, you're so in tune with the whole Purdue Sackler legal thing. Well, I, yeah, listen, I've read that pharma twice. (laughs) (laughs) I still go back and reference it when I need some information. So that history was great, Gerald, thank you. I guess the best way is sort of an update on what's going on now with the bankruptcy. Um, First of all, the the Sacklers are still in control of everything. Uh, The settlement has been confirmed by Judge Drain. And that's just a review is, you know, there's going to be a a bank, a benefit company formed. $4.5 billion is going to be paid out of a trust which happens to reside in Jersey uh, offshore, but we'll get into that a little later. Uh, 700 to 700 million is the only amount that's going to the individual claimants, which is still a horrible travesty of justice. They, they tout the document repository that is going to be created. And we're working very hard on what's happening there, but the bottom line is the Sacklers have complete control in the settlement in writing over what's going to go into that repository and the The documents they have control over the documents they have control because here's the deal it says very clearly in the settlement that uh, non-debtors which that's what the sacklers are classified as in this bankruptcy are not included in the document repository and that's almost a direct quote from the settlement They also later on to make sure that that wasn't harsh enough for us all to deal with. They went on to say, uh, we have the right to challenge any documents that are going in. Now, there are going to be a lot of good documents going into that repository. However, some of the most damning ones, the ones that really show us how this happened and the, the actual behind the scenes emails of what made up this family and how they approached everything they did. Some of those might be lost. Now, however, even though we've, they have still, uh, oh, the last thing is the full releases were completely approved and confirmed by Judge Drain. And those are the releases that give the Sacklers indemnification from any kind of opioid challenge, past, present, and future. 
and it includes a whole list of people that that have been excused as well. So they've covered they've covered their bases. There must be 500 extra parties that are involved in that. However, here are the two things that have sort of thrown a monkey wrench into it that we're watching very carefully now. One is the appeal. As soon as Drain approved this bankruptcy, approximately seven states and the U.S. Trustee's Office, uh, the Washington, D.C., filed an appeal against it. And the second big thing that happened is the Bankruptcy Venue Reform Act. Uh, and that went into being in December 1st, and that's supposed to be stopping forum shopping, because we all know that Judge Drain was handpicked and set up. No, I was just going to say, I know I shouldn't say this, but I just wonder if there's another job opening somewhere with the Sacklers that... You know, um, I'm not sure. We'll see him show up there. Right. We like to say that that we had a lot to do with getting him into uh, retirement because two things were announced. He confirmed the plan and he took off for retirement. And this is the last thing he's going to see through. And I don't think he thought we were going to be this active in exposing everything that was going on. Well, Gerald, don't you see a consultant somewhere to the Sacklers going forward? I see him becoming actually of counsel, of counsel to one of the large Wall Street law firms that might well have been defending the Sacklers or Purdue. These are multi-million dollar legal fees that have been paid. And you know what Cynthia said, very interesting. Two things. First, at the end when she was talking about Judge Drain being handpicked, so Purdue is headquartered in Stanford, Connecticut, and they have a big office in New York City, and they're about to file bankruptcy in 2019. All right, so where do they file? In Connecticut? No. In New York City? No. In Westchester, New York. They do not really have no nexus at all. Why? Because the only judge that could get a bankruptcy case in that particular district where they fired was Judge Drain, who handles these big cases and they thought would be friendly. So they were able to go and shop for him, which is terrible to start the case with. You know, she mentioned at one point, Cynthia did, that some of the money, the 700 million, she said was in Jersey. I don't want anyone to think that's New Jersey. That's Jersey, an offshore banking haven over offshore near the UK, banking. right, right, yeah. There's the <laughs> and, and, and the other thing is, I mean, you know, we talk about this, the, just imagine for anybody listening to this, you've all heard about bankruptcy. You know that there are instances in which there's personal bankruptcy. We can't pay our bills and we finally have to file for bankruptcy or the companies that go bankrupt sometimes, they just can't make it. What really is unusual in this case is that Purdue, with its $35 billion in sales in OxyContin over time, filed for bankruptcy. It had no other real drug on the thing. It said, we have 500 million left in cash. That's it. And billions of dollars owed in all these lawsuits. The Sacklers didn't file for bankruptcy. So why are we talking about them? Why is Cynthia talking about them getting these releases? Because they came before the court and said, oh, by the way, we aren't bankrupt. We have a lot of money. We've got billions of dollars, but we are also sued in all these cases. And if you let us tag along with Purdue and work out and contribute some money to the overall settlement and give us freedom from lawsuits so we will completely be off the hook, that would be fantastic. And the judge has done that, did this. It was done before the precedent was in pharma. 
a company called GH Robbins in which the Robbins family was wealthy and there had been an IUD that had been terrible and the Robbins family also got that um, benefit. So this is a case that's particularly frustrating because the Sacklers shouldn't even be getting the protection of the bankruptcy court. It's nothing to do about justice. It's a payoff in the end. And they were able, what's the price for a get out of jail free card? Four and a half billion dollars. That's what they contributed. And they still have billions of dollars left. Right. And I think what, what uh, Gerald has just done has segued me beautifully into this appeal. And what are the objectives of the appeal? Because this is one of the most important issues that's going on right now. Cynthia, before and you get they, into that, can you tell me which are the seven states? I'm just curious. Uh, yes, happen? I can. If I can remember. Okay, we've got... It's fact, not a big uh, deal. Actually, I was just wondering if Florida was one of them. No, no, no. The big important oh, ones. No. We've got Maryland. Uh, we have New Hampshire. We have Vermont. We have Rhode Island. We have Washington State. Um, and Connecticut, Connecticut. Yeah. Connecticut. That's okay. the last one. Okay. Seven. All right. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> go, go ahead. No, no, that's good. That's good. Um, anyway, the whole purpose of the appeal and the, those seven states in the U.S. trustee's office appealed immediately after confirmation is to force a second look at Drain's application of the bankruptcy law. To put it out there, was Drain within his rights to authorize the provisions of these settlements? Both look at jurisdiction, look at those releases. That's a big hot potato. And I think what we have to do is, uh, I mean, I guess a good way to describe it is think of it as the rungs of a ladder. And the threshold question that Judge McMahon, the judge who was given this appeal, wanted to look at. Basically, she's asking, did we enter or looking at, did we enter this bankruptcy in good faith? Now, what has been thrown around and what I personally believe, and I'm sure Gerald agrees with me, is that there's a question on the table as to whether or not the Sacklers deliberately made the company poor. So when you talked about the restructuring of Davis Polk in 2017, they had two years to come up with a strategy like this before they declared bankruptcy in 2019. So was this a strategy to design to make the Sacklers necessary to the process? Because unless they were necessary, there was no way they could demand as non-debtors these third-party releases that would absolve them of all their accountabilities. Then if you think of the top of the, what's at the top of the ladder? Well, the top of the ladder, really the uh, issue of these releases that we just mentioned and centered around the states and while, why they are contesting because the states are basically saying, you've ripped me of my ability to police on behalf of the constituents and you uh, completely rendered uh, my consumer protection laws inoperable. And finally, the added insult is a bankruptcy judge has determined that I, a general uh, attorney general of the state, I have to accept that every lawsuit and claim that has been filed in my state against these perpetrators, they go away. 
is null and void, right? Yep. And so they're saying it's unconstitutional. Yep. So right Bank? now we're I was going to yeah. say unconstitutional. Let's just call a spade a spade. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Gerald, go ahead. And, and, I, and I think, that, you know, there's some real merit to the appeal, but of course I'm biased on that. Uh, and, and whether it, it, uh, an appellate court or the Supreme Court will hold it, who knows? Um, but I do say this, that it, it, it's remarkable to me that some of the states that were the best in terms of attorney generals being very aggressive and really going after the sacrilege, Massachusetts, New York, they then caved at the end and said, all right, we're on board. We're going along with it because what is it? It's about money. So yep. they spent all this time. They're getting a big payout. They, meaning the states, are getting an enormous payout. The victims, the actual families who suffered, those who have lost children, If you, the most you could get in this is at $48,000, Cynthia, and that's if you are able to show receipts for all the time that you were uh, had uh, taken OxyContin and essentially fill in things that are almost impossible to do. The average payoffs will be pennies on the dollar, less than 10% of this money going to real victims, most of it going to states for you know, working to stop the addiction process that, you know, and, and cycle and crisis that we're in, but not really getting to the people who needed it the most. And that's part of the problem here that um, they were able to get away with that I think is so unfortunate is two things happened very, very fast that the Sacklers got lucky on. One was Purdue files in late 2019 for bankruptcy and in March of 2020 were in COVID. So the pandemic throws this big shadow over it. It wasn't on the front page of the paper anymore. And whereas most courts stopped there was a time when nothing was going on. The bankruptcy continued. They were meeting by Zoom all the time. So the case continued under the cloud of the pandemic and we were missing it. The second thing they got very lucky for, and I say this as a lawyer, I'm not practicing, but I am an attorney, is they went into bankruptcy court. Even attorneys like me find it arcane and obtuse. It's difficult to follow. So some of the best journalists who were reporting on opioids regularly, were suddenly thrown off because now they had a report about bankruptcy law and it's a difficult area to understand right from the get-go so the Sacklers were hiding under this sort of cloud of the pandemic in the arcane world and odd world of bankruptcy and it worked to their benefit because it got them off the front of the press 
Right, right. And I think one thing that I really think is important that we need to bring up about this bankruptcy is that this bankruptcy is, is going to set a president that has never been set before and is, is incredibly dangerous to our country and to our society and incredibly protective of corporations to continue the next 50 years of what yeah, I mean, Gerald and Farm. Why uh, even have uh, consumer affairs if you're removing the right of an individual to sue someone who has produced exactly. something that is dangerous? I mean, right. what's the point? Well, well, right. And I think that, oh, oh go ahead. Oh, no, 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 no I was say, please go ahead, Cynthia. Then I'm going to. Okay. What I, <laughs> Gerald and I have been doing this for a long time. <laughs> we get all excited. <laughs> um, I think another question we have to consider that when this appeal is, is to add to what Gerald was saying, what is um, McMahon going to do? Um, she has a reputation and I sat through the entire uh, day of discussion over this on her here and her hearing and that she voices very serious concerns, which she has. She's asked for some very serious issues to be exposed. But she has a tendency to end up going along with it. So what we have to look at is, you know, what's possibly going to happen when she does rule? Frankly, uh, a lot of people, I, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm dangerous. And uh, I'd like to Gerald's opinion on that. I, <laughs> I don't think there's going to be any radical legal opinion. Uh, I think she's going to send it back to Judge Drain and she's going to ask him to collect information on the various legalities that she has questioned. One of her big topics is she wants to know why the Sacklers took all that money out after the rulings of 2007 and drained Purdue to the point where they were able to declare bankruptcy. Well, we know why. I was gonna say, how could anybody even ask that question? It's obvious. Gerald, go ahead, Gerald. Legal, right? You say things that are obvious. Some things that seem obvious to all of us aren't so obvious to the court and that the court hasn't made them uh, do it. And that means that, give you one quick example. The Sacklers claim that, for instance, in about $10 billion, let's say roughly, of money taken out of Purdue, that between what they were paid over a period of time, that the taxes paid between Purdue and what they paid, it's about 50%. Now, first of all, I have trouble believing that because we know that Apple pays about 4% using Ireland as a tax base. I mean, companies use the tax laws and they find every little nuance and loophole to pay as little as possible. It's I, I, The sectors are very, very smart. It's hard for me to imagine that that's what they paid. So let's say, okay, so let's see the tax returns. That'll ask, tell us if that's the case, but they haven't been... Uh -huh. It's just a generic financial statement. The courts accepted that. So how do we know that's true? There's one other thing. Cynthia last week was one of a, a group of about over 100 people and activists. I wasn't able to get there, unfortunately, that got to Washington, D.C. and demonstrated in front of the Department of Justice to your credit, Cynthia, and everybody else that was there asking for something that we haven't mentioned, which is we're talking about the appeal and how terrible this is. The D Department of Justice and all the attorneys generals who have signed off on the bankruptcy will say in the next sentence, ah, but we haven't closed off criminal proceedings. The Sacklers can still be prosecuted criminally. True, 
But the question is, is anybody opened an investigation? And the answer to that is no. Will they? That's what the demonstration was for last week to get the DOJ to do it. Because if they don't, which is slim, but we're hoping that they might, then nobody's going to do it. And they will truly be off the hook. Right. And they're not. And I'll tell you, they set it up. The Sacklers and their negotiations and their uncannily good lawyers made it almost difficult for the Department of Justice to act on this. Number one, it's very clear that the $4.5 billion, which the attorney generals want and are supporting, um, it's spread over 10 years. And any time within that 10 years, if there's any criminal charges brought against the Sacklers, members of the Sackler family, they believe that they have the right to stop payment because they need those funds to support and to defend themselves. So they've got that piece of it wrapped up. Another part of it is that is the, the Sacklers have, uh, through their releases, a way in which they can maximize their wealth during the course of paying out this $4.5 billion, which is unbelievable. They have a seven-year window that they can drain everything out of Munda Pharma, which is their international strategy for opioid distribution. It's going great, making lots of money. They've Part of the settlement is they're going to sell it. They only have to provide to the settlement a certain percentage of their sale. They don't have to give the whole thing. They can get more. And they have seven years to turn international business into something like the U.S. It will never be just like the U.S., but they're moving into Asia. They're moving into third world and Africa. They are really doing it. And when you hear what Cynthia just said, some of you who are listening to this are going to think, that sounds familiar. It's like deja vu. I've heard that somewhere before. You know what? You did hear it before. It's a it's a, a page out of the playbook of Big Tobacco. That's what Big Tobacco did is they started to get very litigious in the United States and they hit all types of regulatory problems. They increased their sales abroad in countries that weren't nearly as strict in Asia and other places where they had much higher smoking rates. And so Purdue was doing that. And what Cynthia said a second ago about that seven-year window in which the Sacklers get to essentially squeeze as much profit as they can out of operations right uh, for that period of time. What does it mean? According to some analysts who have looked at it, the family will have more money when they have finished writing the last check for the bankruptcy court than they have today. So we have not struck a deal with them in which this four and a half billion dollars, look, it's a lot of money. I don't mean to sneeze at it. Four and a half billion is a lot. But it's not a lot. Maybe if you have 12, 13 or 15 billion dollars, which was a Forbes estimates the family has. So they've got billions still left over. And they may have more than they started with when this is over, which to me is startling. It's jaw dropping, considering we know that all of the money came from the profits of OxyContin. That was their one star hit. Right. Yep. Right. Yep. And what bothers me is the fact that First of all, how could Judge Drain have allowed them to select a trust that's located in the Isle of Jersey, who has, they have completely different financial rules. During the hearing, when they were deposed, they literally said, you can't come get this money. We've given the authority to the the Sacklers to decide how it's going to be dispersed for this case. End of discussion. There's a lot of money in other places. They didn't have to go offshore where it was protected. And again, 
They were allowed to do that. Nobody yep. stopped. Yep. I don't, I don't want to comment on how Judge Strain was able to do that. I don't think we should go there because it won't, it won't <laughs> be nice. Um, so I, I can already see Pharma Part 2, <laughs> Gerald, <laughs> that's just going to focus on this area. But more importantly, what, Cynthia, what can people do to help? I remember we all sent letters to Judge Drain, and I did put that in the podcast, and I did put, push that, and I did. I wrote letters, and I posted it in social media. Do we write to Judge McCann? Uh, Judge McCann has made it very clear she's not going to read letters. Okay. We explored that. And okay. uh, McMahon wants to get it done. Okay. And McMahon, sorry. Yeah. We like her. She's okay. doing a decent job. I don't think she's going to rock the boat because okay. there's too many pieces to this. But, uh, you know, when we finish up, I, I do have a message for the Sacklers that, that might cover a little bit of that, of what you're asking. Uh, so feel, I feel free to give your message. I mean, yeah, okay. feel free. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then Gerald, all, you can come in as the attorney and give us your view. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, Go ahead, Cynthia. <laughs> first, <laughs> I've thought about this a lot, but let me make this perfectly clear. This is coming from Cynthia Munker. This is not coming from any affiliation I have. I am not a lawyer. I cannot. I don't know whether or not I'm impinging on any issues of the law. This is from my heart as a mom. And my message is for the Sacklers. We're not done. And you need to know it. We are going to continue to fight this. You may have won this battle. You may end up getting all your money. You may protect your wealth. You may get your releases. You may have forced the Department of Justice not to do anything. But you don't control the biggest lobby in the United States. And that's us. You may force me or other people to stop being on the front lines. But let me tell you, from every one of us that are out there fighting right now, if we're not there, there are hundreds of thousands of moms. They're just going to step up and take our place. We're not going to let anyone forget who you are and what you've done. We're going to work within the legal system, but we're not going away, either in the United States or internationally. And that's the truth. Thank you. So, so I wish this wasn't virtual because I want to just reach out and give you a giant hug, Cynthia. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> because it's that's the, exactly what you said. That spirit, that determination, that anger, that quest. And I have discovered it repeatedly through mothers, through fathers who have either barely saved their child or lost their children, you know, the Ed Bishes, the Marianne Skolics, you, um, the passion that you have, the fight that you have. And that's one of the things that was so frustrating in the bankruptcy process is you were all lost under this cascade of numbers and what's the creditor and how much does this calculate and what do we do with that and what's that fee and that all that lost the reality of the passion of what you're talking about and and the question you know to you Joni about what to do um yes the appellate judge won't do it so here's my tilting at windmills if somebody and I'm sending 
email. So I'm sending emails to the head of the Department of Justice to Merritt Garland because he can direct his criminal division to start a probe. If I direct it to one or two people in the criminal division, maybe it ends up on the wrong desk or they give it to somebody else's desk or whatever else, send it to Garland. Garland's gonna have to make the decision anyway. Even if somebody in the criminal divisions thinks they wanna open up a criminal probe against the Sacklers, they're gonna have to at this high level, get the sign off of the attorney general. So let's put it on Garland's measure. And then if you really have the time and effort, you can also send to the White House because there is a political aspect to this. The question is, will the will the White House feel as though whatever administration is in power, that there's enough of a of a groundswell of anger over the fact that the Sacklers are getting away with this, that they say to the Justice Department, hey, what are you guys doing over there? So there's two parts of this. Maybe it doesn't make an effect, but we don't know that. And so I encourage people to write mainly to the Justice Department to say, you're our last resort. You are responsible, the justice in your name, Department of Justice. So that would mean opening a criminal probe. We're not saying, although we may believe the sectors are guilty of crimes and would end up in jail, what I'm saying to them as the lawyer is open up the criminal investigation. You don't know that unless you do the probe. Right. So let's at least get it going. Right. That's, right. I just want to add one thing to that. On on uh, Friday, uh, it was announced we had written a letter, and that we being the uh, ad hoc committee on accountability to uh, Garland and to, to his immediate reports, and got a response that it was written by our pro bono lawyer, Mike Quinn whom we torture all the time because he's always worried about what we're going to do. <laughs> and and uh, anyway, it was a great letter and they are, they get, they got back to us and said, they're going to meet with us, which was incredible. And we were th- also to your point on May 18th, Garland wrote a memo uh, to his reports. And it's a memo that's basically is uh, on behalf of the president that their focus was going to be access to equal justice for all. Well, that's us. And that's right. we're going to hold it. Yeah, that's and that's right. fantastic because, you know, uh, just very quickly, with that meeting coming up, then, Joni, even more so, the more letters that, I mean, if Garland and his top criminal person looks at the people at the meeting and thinks, this is it, I've got six angry parents and a, and a pro bono lawyer, I don't have to yep. worry about <laughs> 500 letters behind him he's going to know that they're just representing it so i think you know let him know well but let me ask what may be a very uneducated question and if it is i apologize and you can just blow me off but would it <laughs> is it at all beneficial to write to the attorney general of people's individual states and asking them to go forward or just go straight to garland they won't they, they won't okay. do it i tell that cynthia answer okay. states won't bring a criminal action as a matter of fact uh, <laughs> well, because they want the money. They want the settlement money. And, 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 They're and, tied up just like the DOJ. Okay, okay. And the states that had a possibility of doing it, let's say like in Massachusetts where uh, Moore Healy was the one who said, by the way, I think I've seen evidence of criminal behavior, but she's not bringing that action, unfortunately. Nobody wants to, they've got their money. They don't want to spend another $10 million fighting now the sectors in criminal court, the possibility they win or lose. Let the feds do it as far as they're concerned. Okay, so okay. So everybody should write to the attorney general of the country, Garland. 
And I, I will, um, I'll get that information on how to do that. And I will put it as a slide at the end of the video and urge people to do that. Um, yeah, because the court that the Sacklers are never going to win in is the court of public opinion. And the beauty exactly. of the internet and social media that we have right now, that is the other thing that I would say is that, you know, anybody who has lost a loved one to, you know, opioids should be creating Facebook pages and making sure that in those Facebook pages, they mention Purdue Pharma and they mention the Sacklers in every single thing that goes online. Because what we want is for when someone goes, oh, the Sacklers, who are they? For people to right. Google it, they don't get museums, they don't get schools, they get the fact that these guys created a drug that killed thousands, if not millions of people in this country and they're trying to do it or they're doing it across <sighs> the world. And that's the court of public opinion and yep, nobody can stop that. Nobody can touch it. Nobody can stop it. Nobody can regulate it. You know, I think that uh, in some ways, I mean, who am I to say? I am a, a writer <laughs> sitting out here. I'm certainly not sitting in the, any of the offices of the attorney generals in these states. But I think that they underestimated and the DOJ underestimated the anger that is widespread in the public and what a jury would be like on a trial. And the best evidence of that recently, by the way, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw a jury in Ohio that held billions of dollars or what will be eventually billions of dollars against Walgreens and CVS and and uh, Walmart for having been pharmacies that, that didn't do enough to stop the spread of opioids in two counties in Ohio. Now, those three pharmaceutical national chains went to trial because they thought, we'll win. This is an odd application of the law. It's public nuisance. There's no way we'll lose that case. They weren't willing to settle. And the jury said, guess what? We know about the opioid crisis. We think you're responsible. So you bring the Sacklers in there, people who created, ignited the fire for this crisis and then kept it going while they were pocketing the money. I will tell you that instead of shying away from these prosecutions or the civil cases, it's too bad we didn't end up in court because a juries would have had a say on this across the country. That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Listen, I, got, I cannot thank you guys enough. Everybody, Gerald Posner, author of Pharma, Cynthia Munger, activist par excellence in the whole area against Purdue and against the Sacklers. You know, you two are fighting the good fight. I want to reiterate to everybody that you need to write to the president and you need to write to the attorney general, attorney general Garland. And, you know, you need to request that they do a criminal investigation on the Sacklers because they, they absolutely cannot be allowed to get away with this. And people need to be all over social media and just keep that court of public opinion going. There's no way they'll win. There's too many people who have lost children, lost friends, lost loved ones to the lies that the Sacklers told about this drug. And it, it just it's, cannot be allowed to die. And Cynthia, as you said, it won't be allowed to die. So yeah. there you go. And, you know, it's just a sidelight. I mean, I keep sending to reporters that I know who cover the White House beat suggestions that they try to ask the question at a White House briefing. Does the president have an opinion on whether the Department of Justice should look into a criminal case against the Sackler family? Of course, if that gets asked, then they have to deal with it. Then That's it's a right. I just want one reporter to ask it, but I haven't been successful. Uh -huh. right. Hmm. Okay. Well, on the 
Well, right now, a request for an, a special counsel to open an investigation, because apparently, according to some of the lawyers that were involved in the 2007 case, they feel that there's legitimate reason for that. Okay. That's out of my wheel of knowledge. <laughs> okay. Thank you both so much. Um, Thank you. We are, we are starting off 2022 with a bang. Um, dear Sacklers, we know who you are. Don't think you're going to brush this under the carpet. Not going to happen. You guys are awesome. Exactly. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, Joni. Thanks, Joni. Thank you for listening. If you or someone that you love has been affected negatively by the opioid epidemic, I hope that we gave you maybe not so much hope, but that we gave you an outlet for you to speak out and have your voice be heard. Um, I meant it very, very seriously when I said that in the court of public opinion, the Sacklers will never be acquitted. They will never get away with it. But that's only if each and every one of us stays on it, continues to post on social media, and make sure you mention the Sacklers everywhere. They need to not be able to sweep this under the carpet. It's a new year. I hope that you, if you need treatment, get clean and sober this year. And if you have a loved one that needs treatment, I hope that they get clean and sober. If you've lost someone, my heartfelt sorrow goes out to you. And we'll be back again next week with another interview. Thank you so much for listening and watching. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.